commute and today I've got the pleasure of speaking with Jackie Mooney who's a kinesiologist. One of the first things I'm going to do is to get Jackie to explain what kinesiology is. Okay Peter, um, kinesiology is quite a new modality. It started only uh, about 40 years ago and it's a way of working with the body in a non-invasive way using uh, what we call a biofeedback system from the body to determine if there is stress in a particular area in the body and where the stress might be. Then we want to look at what we need to do to either bring an awareness to the person so that they can change this, the imbalance that's in the body or whether there's something that we need to do externally to help stimulate that change. And so these stresses, uh, from a, an athlete's perspective, they're going to manifest in performance problems, I guess. Um, yes, yeah, stresses can manifest in a multitude of ways. They can be physical, so they can actually be an injury. Um, they can be physiological, so they can affect the function of the body, so either um, of an organ system, so like a digestive system problem, which can affect the person in how they feel. Mm -hmm. um, it could be an immune problem, so their health isn't as good as it should be. Um, it can affect them on a mental level where they either have anxiety, which is that's mental emotional, but it can also be cloudiness in their in their mental um, function. So it can affect how they think about what they're going to do, how they learn new techniques, how they can recall them when they're under pressure. And of course, the, one of the big things is the emotional component, and that affects everything. I mean, we know how it affects us with our nervous system so that we can be lose our confidence. One of the big things I guess for sporting people is it changes actually the, the, the muscle tone of the body. You have an automatic muscle tone that's um, set by, um, first part of it is conscious when we choose to be consciously relaxed or choose to be more stressed or use more energy but we also have um, a part of our muscle tone that's set by the deep subconscious part of our brain and it's set in response to a survival program. So the survival program is about actually staying alive and the perception of something that could be threatening to us or, or not. And now I, the word perception is really important because it isn't always something that's going to threaten us, but it's, I mean, if you get a, for example, with golf, if you hit the ball well or don't hit the ball well, it's generally not going to change your life as far as whether you're going to be alive or not. If somebody hits you with a golf ball, that could, but not how you hit mm. the golf ball. But it affects us on so many other levels, you know, how people see us, how we see ourselves as a player, as a performer. Especially the very good players, it can have career ramifications. So a, a professional golfer, if they have to go to a qualifying school at the beginning of the year, if they don't succeed at that qualifying school, then essentially they're not going to have a home for a year. They're going to have to you know, scratch around and play. For younger players who are looking to play in tournaments or perform well in tournaments, uh, they're among their peers all the time, so I can see how those stresses are going to manifest at, at any level, really. Yeah. Well, that actually is survival um, at a higher level. It's not really just staying alive, but it is when you look at your how you fit in with your peers and also with your family. If you don't succeed and if you don't work then you're not going to bring in the income and so your family theoretically could go hungry hmm. and that's about survival. Hmm. 
I, I was actually thinking then, not just at the, at the elite level of golfers, but even golfers who are beginning. Sometimes they'll report, if, they, if they're coming for golf coaching, that they're really nervous. Part of the reason that they don't actually go on to the golf course is because they're concerned about how they'll look. Will they be holding people up when they play? Will they not hit the ball well enough to deserve to be on the golf course in the first place? Sometimes it's men, but mostly it's women. So that's still that same response, that survival response kicking in. Yes, and it's interesting because when you talk about that, those fears, the fear of failure is a key emotion for a part of the brain that is involved very strongly in how we learn new things. So it's called the hippocampus. Mm -hmm. And the hippocampus allows us to take in new information. And that could be, um, the information can be just uh, the hole that you're playing. So how far it is away, what foliage is around, you know, if there's a sand trap, there's a big lake at the bottom, those sorts of things. And then look at how to solve the problem that's involved with that. And hippocampus is so important for take, for learning new things, so that would be learning new skills. But it's also really important for when you want to recall what you already know. So it's important to retrieve not just short-term memory in current time, but also to recall from long-term memory. Different players that I've spoken to, uh, debriefing them after a tournament or after a round during a tournament, we might have discussed different options they've had on, on shots when they're playing. And there have been times where players have not thought through shots properly, not because they were lazy or anything like that. It's just that it was almost like their thinking was blocked for some reason, just because of the situation. So an example would be a player's in the trees, for example, and they have a range of options for ways to play the shot. They might just hit a short shot back onto the fairway. They might have an option to hit it over a tree or around a tree or something like that and often when they're stressed they actually aren't able to think through all those options they may not even see all those options and they'll make a decision which might not have been the best decision at the time so it's not that they can't think it's just that in that situation they haven't for whatever reason been able to think through their options correctly does that make sense that makes a lot of sense because we have we we work at so many different levels in our brain we've got um, they basically talk about we have three brains so we've got our reptilian brain which is the oldest part of our brain and that's about really eating sleeping and making more reptiles so that's like the survival part is about reproduction but you have to stay alive and you have to be able to eat to reproduce mm. and it's got all of our survival motions that are there to, so that we stay alive then on top of that, we've got our emotional brain, which sort of mushrooms over top of the reptilian brain, and that helps to modulate some of the really strong survival emotions that come up from the reptilian brain. And on top of that, then we've got the cortex, the neocortex, or the newer part of the brain, and that's got our higher thinking. And that's the part that you're talking about that has to plan out what the best shot would be for the, the current mm. situation. And that's the part of the brain that we would like to be working with most of the time. Unfortunately, when something triggers off a pattern that we've got, which is usually stored in either our reptilian or more commonly our limbic brain, our emotional brain, then if that gets fired strongly enough, it actually shuts down the front part of our brain, our prefrontal cortex or 
our thinking part of our brain so we can't actually use it. And that's the time when we most need to use it for, I guess, creative planning and constructive uh, thoughts about what we could do to get out of the situation. But it's, we don't actually have access to that or very limited access when the limbic brain is firing really strongly. And some of the things that would fire that is the fear of failure, um, the, uh, I guess, disappointment, uh, expectations that we might have on ourselves, expectations that others might have on us. Hmm. Those are all really important things that can cause problems. Some of them you can actually change just by becoming aware of them. Hmm. And when you consciously see that there's a pattern running, you can think, well, that's not very constructive to what I'm trying to do. And other ones have got um, a deeper, I guess, almost more insidious underlying pattern that's in the brain, and they're a little bit more difficult to clear. It's not one that you can just do a, 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 a an affirmation to say, I can do this, hmm. and it'll go away. It seems to be a bit more hardwired into the brain. Those are the trickier ones. So how does kinesiology help with that type of thing? Well, kinesiology works in a lot. Do you, are, do you mean just with the emotional yeah, ones? Yeah, with the emotional ones. So an athlete might recognize that they have a, a, a pattern of behavior, a frustration or an anger response that seems to kick in almost automatically. And they know that it's destructive for their performance, but they feel like they can't do anything about it. With kinesiology, we'd actually start a little bit further back than that. We'd probably start with the physical and make sure that the muscles are all in balance mm-hmm. because that's a really important part of it. Um, if, you, if you have pro- you know, problems with your shoulders or your hips or your knees, for example, or your wrists, yes. then that's going to affect your performance. So those are real physical things, and they're things that you can work with with exercise. Mm. But if the muscles are actually not switched on, it's not a matter of strength, it's a matter of neural integrity, so the messages aren't going through. So by switching them on, then you're able to work with them better. So we would look at that probably first, and then we would look at other sorts of systems, including vision and your balance. But when we're looking at the emotional component, there's I guess there's two main areas. One of them would be, well, we would look to try to identify what would be the triggers. So whether there's a specific um, voice in your head, you know, someone from your past, like a memory that's uh, causing you to react in this way that's not uh, productive or constructive to what you're doing in the moment. Um, And maybe we look to see if there's an age or a time that it came in. But trying to actually determine what the emotions are that are being triggered. Hmm. And... Like I said before, sometimes it's actually just bringing it to the conscious level of awareness. So when you you know that it's there, you can then make a choice about changing it. But I think that what you're talking about is people, for example, if they've been receiving coaching and they've been having lessons, this is a pattern that maybe they've been trying to change, yet they find that the trigger is so quick that they're in reaction before they can even see that they're in reaction. How we would deal with this, when, when we spoke previously, you talked about some of the things that you do about actually helping the person to really learn how to be present in the moment to determine that there is a difference between uh, not being present mentally 
and actually being there in the moment. So you, you've got some good skills that you teach people to do so that they can start to maybe less have less attachment to each shot and they can start to look at it from a different perspective. So we would do that as well. And we might take it to a slightly different level because some people, they want to be sort of present and in the moment. They want to be aware of what's going on. But when a trigger happens, it pulls them into the back of their their memories, like into their past. Um, and it can be fear of, quite often it's, it's things from the past that are triggering it. Sometimes it can be the fear of the future, what's, what might happen if they don't get it right. I mean, in this moment, that's often going to be a bit of a, a problem, but it will be triggered by something in the past. So what we would do is, again, try to find out what it is, and then go to the parts of the brain that are responsible for setting these programs in place. And usually if it's one of the more severe types of patterns that it's very difficult to resolve, like modulating your emotion, Hmm. then we would look at some of the areas that are involved with that. And they would be things like the amygdala and some of the, even the cerebellum is very strongly involved with modulating our emotion, particularly at a a deep sort of Hmm. emotional brainstem level. And then there's much higher levels of modulation as well. Our brain's pretty amazing the way it has itself set up so that we've got these really powerful emotions that will keep us alive. And then we have ways to make sure that they're expressed in a way that's socially appropriate so that we survive on a, an ego level and also in a social situation as well. But they can so easily go out of balance. And when they are out of balance, then it makes it difficult for us to modulate. And when they are out of balance, so someone who wakes up and, and for no apparent reason, they just feel different. They just they feel like their thinking's clouded or they, um, they don't feel on top of the world. They just, there's, there doesn't seem to be an explanation for it from one day to the next. Um, that can be... That's probably not the same example of emotional modulation. That's more... That could be dietary... It could be something like candida problems, you know, digestive imbalances. It could be a little bit of um, neurotransmitters in the brain. So it could be it could be unresolved emotional things that they just haven't looked at. So that could be like having a longer-term underlying problem. Um, I'm talking like emotional modulation is when you see someone with road rage. Mm-hmm. That's emotional modulation problems. They um, it, or um, you see that when people have been say drinking. And you go into a pub and there's a bunch of young guys and they're, you know, practicing drinking for the first few times. And it's not a pretty sight usually. And also sometimes with women, they have problems with, like alcohol shuts down the frontal cortices as well. So it means that you don't have that higher level of emotional modulation. But we're talking, when you're talking about sports performance, um, emotional modulation is going to be coming from, it could be coming from lots of different levels. And that's not just waking up in the morning and feeling not so great. It's something that just hits you when you're not expecting it. You think that you're okay, and then you go to hit the, the the ball, and you have a couple of lousy shots, and then you throw your club down in anger and have a little tantrum on the course. That's where that's an extreme emotional modulation, yeah. and that um, yeah, that definitely could respond well to kinesiology. But there's lots of subtle levels of emotional modulation. And they're the ones that really affect you in really tiny ways that it would seem. Um, but when they trigger 
they, but they can have really profound results in your golf swing. So, for example, I spoke about the survival part of the brain, the reptilian brain. There's a whole group of nuclei that run through there, and they're responsible for our levels of wakefulness and arousal. Mm -hmm. So that's appropriate to the situation. So being alert, being aware. But they also set our base on muscle tone. And that's really important um, when you're playing a sport. So particularly competitive sport or something that has gross motor movement combined with fine motor control, mm -hmm. which is really what golf is. And that's the part of the brain that sets it according to whether it thinks that there's a challenge to your survival or not. So what it can do is, when I said it, say it sets our basal muscle tone, that means our whether our muscle tone is um, really floppy and loose and you just don't feel like you've got any strength, or you look at someone who's dejected and you know their, their body position collapsed, they mm. don't have good muscle tone there. Or if you look at someone who's angry and they've got you know, a lot more, you can see the muscles are really tight. Mm. Well, that's what basal muscle tone is. And using kinesiology, we can monitor to determine whether muscles under energy or over energy. And depending on what muscle it is will help us determine what organ system it relates to, and that helps us to work out the emotions that are related to it as well. But this, this fine tuning of the muscle tone is so important for something like golf because if you're about to play a shot and you have your range of motion and when you're going to do your swing and the follow-through, if your muscle tone just tightens a little bit more than you're, you're used to, then that's going to totally affect the way the, your swing is going to be. Mm. But also, it can be, it can change, it can be more tight on one side of your body than on the other side of your body. So then again, that's going to affect the way you play, the way your body, your hips move, the way your arms and shoulders work. So it can be really, it seems like it can be, it can be really subtle, but it can be very profound. And we've all experienced it. All you have to do is sit in front of the computer for a couple of hours and you, you know, reach up to your shoulders and you go, whoa, my shoulders mm -hmm. and my neck are so tight, you know. So it's something that we've certainly all experienced. The muscle tone is a really interesting one because a lot of the time in a, in a technical golf coaching environment, it's about determining which parts of the body are, say, too tight. For example, if a, a lot of players carry you know, too much tension in their, you know, shoulders, arms, hands, um, and even right through their body. And so they feel like they haven't got very good range of movement. But the fact is the body's just, it's tight. It's not stiff. So it's not, it's not a matter of them not being able to move through a range. It's like the muscles are too tight to allow them to. There's an exercise which is probably not going to be explained too well in a podcast situation without someone in front. But imagine that... that I have a golfer in front of me and I get them to uh, place their hands on their shoulders, stand in a golf posture and begin to make a backswing movement. What I'll do is I'll resist that movement, just gently, get them to turn a little bit more and then get and resist again. And it actually switch, switches off the muscles that would normally um, stabilise them or get them to move the other way. And so all of a sudden, the, only the muscles that need to work are working and there's instantly a greater range of movement. Mm. And so a lot of the time with the coaching, it's, it's about creating a, an environment where only the muscles that need to be switched on are switched on for the movement that they need and at an appropriate level. And so most players, when they're doing something new, they 
carry a lot more muscle tension than what they actually need to do it. Oh, yes, yes. And then after a while, the movement becomes more fluid and it's, there's less tension there. Exactly. One of the things that came to mind when you were speaking about that also is that a lot of muscle tension is situational. So you can be fine when you're on the practice course and you can putt like there's no tomorrow and everything just goes exactly where you want. But as soon as you're then in a different situation where there's a crowd watching or someone is assessing what you're doing, then that can change it dramatically. Mm -hmm. And that um, performance anxiety, then all of a sudden you think you, you can barely remember your name and swing, you know, I, I, and all of that just goes out the window. And that's a really important area for people. That's where, you know, you can do all the, mm. th they can do all the training and all the hard work, but then they get out there and that's when, the, what you were saying is that's when they choke. Yes. They can't follow through with what they know how to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like they learn, they forget how to, how to do it. And they can lose that from the practice fair where they feel fantastic, get to the first tee, mm. and it's gone. That's right, yeah. Mm. Yeah. And it, again, all of that is, it, it's the, the chatter in their mind that is telling them how they should be, how they should be reacting, um, what's dependent upon this, how much of their physical survival or their ego survival is, is riding on them hitting um, the ball the way they want to do. Mm -hmm. And this is for every sport. It's an interesting thing too, One of something else that just came to mind when you're talking about that is when you talked about the muscle tone that you use when you're first learning to do something, you use quite different programs in your brain when you're learning to do a new skill than if you're using a skill you already know how to do. And so there are quite different parts of our motor part of the brain that are involved. And the first one you use, you have a lot of input that comes in from your visual and your auditory and um, your muscle proprioception or feedback from your muscles so that you can start to learn about what you're doing. And if it's once you've but once you've got this pattern in, it becomes much more automatic and it's harder to change. And that's a really, really good reason why people, if they're planning on learning to play a sport, should have coaching at the beginning. So that they learn to do it correctly the first time. Mm. Because when they've got an old pattern that's there, it's a lot harder to change it. And you would know that yourself when you're training people that when they've picked up a bad habit it's so much faster to train them when they haven't got that than mm. if they're trying to get them out of an old habit. And those old habits can just pop back in, yeah. you know, when they go under stress. Yeah, and sometimes it's easier if the, if the pattern needs to be changed radically. Sometimes if it's a small change, it's harder for, them, for, for the person to detect a difference, a change. Yeah. And that's partly because the brain automatically will run the program it knows. It's like mm. burning a CD and you want to do this motion, you just play the CD again. And so you say, now just change the lyrics just a little bit or the, you know, the, the music just a little bit. And it goes, well, no, let's just run this program we already know how to do. Yeah, it's harder to just pick up, yeah, learning a new one or a radically different one. And, and a lot of this is based around perception too. You know, we'll, we'll always do the thing that we think we should be doing. An example is... Uh, a coach to lady recently and her opening comment to me was I know what I'm doing wrong I can't get the club under the ball to get it up into the air and so I said oh, show me what you mean 
And so she demonstrated a very incorrect technique, but the technique was perfectly aligned to her perception of what she thought she needed to do. And as soon as the perception changed, she was able to make a subtle change to what she was doing and the, and the shots were better straight away. So a lot of it can come back to what we think we should be doing. Perception is something that's incredibly important because perception is really how we see things versus, and, and that might be correct for mm. us in the moment, but it's, it may be totally inaccurate as to how mm. other people see it. And again, it's, you know, depending on what you're doing, you need someone to look at it from outside eyes to give us a bit of feedback about um, perhaps mm. a more constructive way to, to do a particular task, yeah. <laughs> whether it's an emotional task or whether it's a, um, a physical task, like hitting a golf ball. Yeah. I'm, I'm keen to go back a couple of steps and explore the concept of choking mm-hmm. that we sort of touched on just a few minutes ago. We talked about an athlete maybe losing their their sense of uh, feel or muscle tone increasing from going from the practice area to the first tee. At other times, uh, they can be sailing along quite nicely during a round of golf. Then all of a sudden, they tighten up. And usually, it's well, a lot of the time, it's thinking of consequence. That's exactly right. The, when you think about consequence... When we think about anything, we always go back to the back part of our brain. That's where we store all of our memories and of everything that we've learned and everything that we've actually been exposed to. So all of our experiences from even in the womb are actually recorded in our body and we have a memory of it. And we tend to store it with the emotional content of how it was laid down in the first place. And so... We learn two main ways. We learn through pleasure and reward, so it feels really good Mm. and we like it, um, and so we want to do it again, or through um, pain and punishment. It really hurts, or we don't get acknowledgement for it, or we are told that it was naughty, so to try to avoid Mm. doing it again. Those emotional overtones are going to be with everything that we've learned through our experiences, but then you have other repeated experiences that will either reinforce that or start to change it. Sometimes we get a pattern that's locked in though and that pattern the, the sometimes it's just like the, what I mentioned this before when I said there's sort of two different levels of how we have imbalances and one of them is where the body's just picked up a pattern that at one time it might have been constructive and it might have been useful for the person to get over that, get through a situation that was perhaps challenging. So it worked for them in the past. And they just kept doing it because it's a bit of a habit, and they haven't really thought about changing it. Um, And so when you draw it to their attention, then they go, oh, I hadn't even realized I was doing that. And then they can consciously make a choice when they see themselves doing it again. They can change that. Now, that's about them becoming consciously aware. So you have to get the person to see that there's a pattern that perhaps is not very constructive for them or not helpful. But sometimes it's different. Sometimes even though they can see this, they still can't change it. 
they go, I can't believe I just did that again. The person did this, and I, you know, someone <coughs> coughed, and, mm. and they did it to irritate me, and I reacted. I did the same thing where I know that they're doing it, and I know I don't want to react, and I've been here before. These are the ones where I can't believe I'm doing it again is the pattern. It can be for things like phobias. It can be um, addictions, you know, smoking when you've mm. got lung problems, things like that, or doing things that you know are not good for you. But it can be emotional reactions as well. And these are the ones, this is different. This is when the body is written it in as a survival program. And it no longer thinks that this is just a good idea. It thinks that you have to keep doing this pattern to survive. It, even though on a conscious level, when your brain is working on that level, you can see that it's not constructive to you. On a subconscious level, your body doesn't work that way. It doesn't think about consequences as such other than staying alive. And it says... Well, this pattern's worked for us. You're alive. Uh, stop complaining. My role was to keep you alive. It has nothing to do with quality of life or quality of golf swing or golf game. It's mm -hmm. about keeping you alive. So it can't. it's hard to change that sort of pattern by having an observation of it. It still keeps happening. And those are the ones that will, res will respond well to kinesiology. Those are patterns that we need to go in and... I mentioned we need to look at the parts of the brain, find out where it's being stored, what's, who are the culprits, who put it in there, who locked it in. Well, not so much who put it in, because those will be situations. And that's always good information to know. More importantly, which part of your brain is, is holding it so that you can't release it. And then we can find out what to do to, to diffuse that and hmm. allow you to move on in a probably healthier way. So those patterns can be changed? Well, the patterns definitely can be changed, yeah. yeah. A lot of it can be, a lot of it you can change just through, again, awareness, but some of them are very, some of them are a lot more difficult, and you probably would have found that for yourself when you're mm -hmm. working with people, um, that just showing them another way to look at it, and becoming aware, and they go, whoa, I get it, and then mm -hmm. they can change it, and other times you go, they go, I get it, and I still can't change it, Yeah. I still choke, Yeah. I still choke, and that's going to be because their survival pattern is you have to... You try to teach them that it's not about life and death. Their subconscious doesn't believe that because it has a pattern that says this is about life or death and I've mm. got to go into fight-flight rather than... Fight-flight doesn't work really well when you're playing a sport. It doesn't work well in relationships either. It doesn't work really well in other things except when you're needing to fight off a saber-toothed tiger or something like that. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> and we don't really need to do that very often, you know. So. No, not in the last couple of years. No, I haven't had many sleep with tigers <laughs> around. But my, my subconscious has believed there's been a few lurking around the corner. So, <laughs> yeah. The things that we've, um, we've chatted about as being important, one, one is very much um, an awareness of what's going on. Yes. So if an athlete's performing well, it's important to know why they're performing well. So if you're performing well and you've got an awareness, you know, these are, this is how I'm thinking when I'm performing well. Uh, this is how I feel physically when I'm performing well. Um, so they recognise patterns just as if I'm not performing well, then this is, these are my patterns of thinking. This is what my self-talk's like. So they can actually compare and contrast. And so they've got that awareness. Okay. The, other, the second thing was uh, this idea of presence, being present, which is tied into awareness as well, so that there's not the thinking of, of consequence. You know, if I hit a good shot here, it could be, mean, whatever. I can win a tournament, I can have my best score ever, I can beat my opponent, or 
gee, if I hit a bad shot here, I'm really in trouble. This match could be over. I'm not going to play well. That, that sort of thing. So actually saying, well, this is the shot that I've got at hand. What's my job? My job is to assess my options, select an option, and then go through my shot process to play the shot as well as I can. Mm. So, so that's staying, you know, staying present and being aware. What are the other key things that you feel, whether it's from a kinesiology point of view, that, that is going to help someone to perform very well? really want to make sure that your physical body is in good shape. Mm. Look at your, I guess, your, your emotional body as well. Mm. I mean, that's, that's incredibly important. So the psychological aspect of golf is probably one of the biggest things. Yes. People report that when they're in the zone and they're just connecting in with what they're doing, everything just flows beautifully and they feel it. That's because they're just so totally in the moment that it's all going well and it's not conditional upon um, whether it goes far or whatever it's just everything happens as exactly as it's meant to because they're so connected properly I mean golf is one of the most beautiful games as far as helping people to become present and in the in mm-hmm. the moment because if they want to play well they've got to really do that I guess it's also a good game for getting rid of your frustrations too you want to go out and whack something around, but that's probably not the best. That's probably not when you're going to have your actual best, no. your best performances. Golf is, in itself, it's a it's a, a way to help you see when something is actually not going well in your life, and it's a, a uh, gives you an opportunity to try to explore what you may need to look at, mm. so that you actually are functioning not just as a golfer at the highest level but as a person because one of the things you talked to me about previously was uh, what I do when I'm working with people and one of the areas that I specialized in is is the brain and and learning problems. So because of that I have worked with a lot of children but I also work with a lot of adults because the reality is, is if you don't resolve, if you've got problems at school that's an obvious learning problem. But if you have problems like when you're with your family, resolving issues with them, or any area of your life, then that's actually a learning problem as well. And so I guess it's about learning. So when you have problems with your golf, then there's something that you need to learn. There's something you need to um, look at that would be really useful for you as a person Hmm. rather than just as a golfer. And when you do look at that, that will improve your golf as well. Yeah, and that makes so much sense because often players, if they have stresses outside of the game, mm-hmm. it affects their performance. Yeah. A lot of times, I, I know that a lot of male professional golfers have started to have their best years pretty soon after they get married. Everything gets settled and away they go. Yes. Or they take their family on tour, particularly when they're very young, and it all works out well. And the kids get to school age and all of a sudden the difficulties around what do we do with school, that adversely affects their performance. Yes, yeah. yeah. Oh, it is, because you've got all those other all those other issues that are involved. And also just sometimes that can just up the ante too. That adds all of these emotional pressures. And that means before when I was playing and I was doing well, I didn't have as many people relying on me. But now... I'm the breadwinner of the family, and my performance is so important to pay for the kids' 
schooling and to pay for the family. So that mm. was a lot of extra pressure on. Mm. Or it's always that perception of, pre- of pressure. Yeah. About we need to survive. That's going to then trigger more of their survival emotions. And they're no longer... I mean, ideally, I would think that someone would play golf. And every time they hit the ball, each moment is just like the delight of being there. It's the movement of your body, the club, and hitting the ball and enjoying the beautiful environment that you're in. I mean, mm. golf courses are some of the most beautiful places to be. And it's just a sheer pleasure of actually doing it. You know, your body working well. But I wonder how often people really find that as is their experience. And it could be. Every ball that they hit could be that amazing experience. Mm. Yeah, usually there are big smiles when they do hit the ball well. And that never goes away. It doesn't matter how long you've been playing or what level you've played to. You know, striking the ball nicely yeah. is a great feeling appreciated by everybody. Well, certainly by the person who hits it anyway. I guess the fact that it doesn't happen for every single time you hit the ball hmm. increases the pleasure when you do do it well, doesn't it? Yeah. But ideally, you know, you could actually find that every time you hit the ball, there's that, ball oh, that felt great. Yeah, <laughs> wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> you mean all of your all of your clients don't have that that sensation? They should be, <laughs> or they could be. They could be. Yeah, but I guess it's the the fact that we don't have it all the time that does make it that much better when we do. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Jackie, there's so many ways that um, we can see that kinesiology can be beneficial to helping a player both from a physical perspective as well as from a mental and emotional perspective. And I'd certainly encourage the, the golfers listening. And even if you're not golf, a golfer, if you're an athlete in any, of any description, mm-hmm. or not even an athlete, just anybody who a wants person. to perform better, a person <laughs> who wants to perform better, I think kinesiology could be a fantastic way that they might be able to explore how they can become a better performer. Yes, yeah. yeah. And there are a lot of people who are trained. There's different types of training. There's the um, Australian Kinesiology Association has a good list of, of practitioners, but you'll find that there's a website, and you can. There are people who specialize in sports kinesiology, um, others who specialize in emotional um, resolution, allergies, um, other physical types of things. So that, yeah, there's there's a lot of different types of kinesiologists that can meet all those needs yeah. oh that's fantastic Jackie thanks for your time thank you Peter it's, it's been enjoyable. a pleasure absolutely